Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Hans Miller. He's the CEO and co-founder of Airside. Hans, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys have done and are doing at Airside is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, sure. I grew up in uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, just north of Boston, and uh, moved to the Washington, D.C. area about uh, 25 years ago. Okay, very cool. You went to university... What did you take and why? <laughs> you went to a few. Uh, I was, yeah, I went to a few. Um, I got really interested in the intersection of business and government. And so my okay. my degrees sort of reflect that. How did you how did you get interested in those two things? I have no idea. Okay, interesting. <laughs> it's just, it was just something I became interested in. And uh, I've always felt that some of the most challenging problems and puzzles that it can affect the most people are in the government world. And I believe that applying the lessons and tools of the private sector uh, can help with those. And that became something I, I focused on, went to grad school to cover both of those angles and have been fortunate enough to have the chance to, to actually put it into practice. Very cool. So walk us through your career up until airside and and you guys well you guys built a really successful uh passport app do you want to talk about that along the journey too and then how that became airside yeah sure I, you know it, it's funny i think of the the old steve jobs quote that you, know, you, you can connect the dots looking backwards but <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's hard to do that looking forward um my career started at McKinsey and uh, at the time I was one of the few people that was interested in doing uh, public sector work. Okay. There weren't a lot of us that were, that were interested. Um, as a result, when, when 9-11 happened, um, the White House called a serial entrepreneur named Kapali and said, hey, we need you to help figure out you know, what the response to airport security is going to be. Okay. He decided to call uh, I don't know, 12 or 15 major companies in the U.S. and ask them to send somebody <laughs> to, to join the team. That phone call somehow ended up on my desk, and uh, I had the world's shortest interview. I met Kip uh, down on a metro platform in Lanfant Plaza. And I said, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Hans Miller. I was told to meet you here. He said, say something intelligent. I said, I want to help the country. He said, you're hired. Uh, <laughs> so that was, that was an awesome moment. Um, 
we built what ultimately became TSA. Uh, we hired 60,000 people at 450 locations in 10 months. Wow. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of uh, jokes at TSA's expense, and I think some of that uh, comes from when you grow an organization that quickly, there's bound to be bumps. And uh, I think now that TSA is approaching 20 years old, we've, we've seen it mature and um, become a lot more stable and a lot more uh, professional and continues to improve. So that's been good. Um, as a result of all that, I got really interested in how airports work and how processes work and how can you embed uh, security into things that make the experience flow more smoothly and be you know, more convenient, more efficient overall. How do you get those those wins that are wins for both industry and the government? Interesting. And uh, yeah, it was great. And so I, you know, I met Adam in 2006. One of the projects we worked on together was bringing mobile boarding passes to the United States, and that was a really successful project that we. Uh, put into place with, with working very closely with the airlines and uh, airports. And it was, a, it was a great example of a federal agency and industry coming together to make change happen very, very quickly at relatively low, low cost, uh, as opposed to sometimes a traditional government program that can take a long time and a lot of money to run. So it was, it was really all about how do we make this uh, standard that the industry can adopt and it worked out really well. About that same time, the iPhone came out. Right. And I think we all realized pretty quickly, hey, uh, this is a big deal. If you can use the iPhone to make it so that you don't need to stop anywhere to check in, uh, what else can you do with it? What other lines can you eliminate? We started looking around. We founded Airside in 2009. Um, we started off with a few different apps. Um, multi-airline check-in app uh which was really cool but uh, difficult yeah and i can imagine the, the first mobile app for ordering food for delivery inside the airport oh, um, which we worked very closely with hms host um, and we got that set up at about a dozen airports or so and uh and then in 2003 we had the idea for mobile passport and we went to our old colleagues at Homeland Security and suggested it and suggested a, a path for how it might work. And we worked really closely with them to set standards around security and privacy and operations uh, that would work for them while we took on the challenge of figuring out how to make it user-friendly. Uh, and that was the birth of Mobile Passport. Interesting. And it's been really successful, correct? I think so. Uh, I, we're everybody on our team is quite proud of of it. I think we're we're proud that CBP had the uh, foresight and flexibility to work with us on it. It's really a, a joint win, and and the airlines and airports uh, obviously have a huge huge role to play in making it successful as well. So it's really a team effort. But um, we launched with one airport in the summer of four, 2014 in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, we had great support from the community, and uh, we ran a test there for six months, and then we expanded it to four additional sites for another six months. And then finally, in 2016, we, we really got rolling, and we rolled it out nationwide, uh, working closely with CDP and Airport Council International North America, who, along with Airlines for America, are big sponsors of the app and really helped make it, make it 
Very cool. So walk us through what you guys are building now with at Airside. Sure. So one of the things we realized when we were going through the mobile passport experience is that um, we were helping CBP give travelers a digital identity experience. Right. And people love it. So we started to think, well, where else could we do that? How else could we help? And not surprisingly, the, the travel industry is really interested in this. And there's been a lot of experimentation and testing around using facial recognition to automate boarding and automate customs, automate uh, all kinds of check-in and bag checks. And the problem that, that kept coming up in the industry was when you take a picture of somebody in order to let them board an aircraft instead of having to fumble with a boarding pass, what are you comparing them to? Right. What's the reference photo that you trust? And second of all, who's going to be responsible for, for storing and managing that reference photo? Right. Uh, so that was a big question that really got highlighted when GDPR and the, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act came out, along with some other state laws. So we looked at, you know, when we built Mobile Passport, we said, hey, let's not have a central database <laughs> full of people's identity information, right? Smart. That seems like a bad idea. <laughs> so we, we really said, let's, let's really focus on privacy. Let's make that one of our calling cards. Let's set it up so that the individual owns all of their data. It's only stored in their phone. Only they can ex- access it unless they choose actively to share it with a third party. And so that's what we've built. We've built a new, um, a new set of tools that allows the traveler or anybody else for that matter uh, to scan in their official government identity document. Um, okay. We then verify that through techniques, sometimes going directly to the government source data. And we can say, okay, this identity is real and this photograph is a government source photograph that we can trust. And uh, we, we lock that down on the, on the individual's device. Nobody at Airside can actually get into that account once it's set up. Right. Okay. We've got another API, and, and you know, now an airline can invite a traveler to say, hey, um, do you want to have a biometric seamless travel experience today? We can say, yes, I consent. Here's my photograph for the next four hours after which point becomes unreadable. Okay, so it's like a set time limit. That's smart. Yeah. Okay, so I want to dive a little bit deeper into that then. So, okay, it's stored on my phone. What happens if I get a new phone or I lose my phone? That depends on what choices that the individual has made around backing up their phone. Okay. Um, So... If we don't have an account, if you lose your phone and you haven't backed it up, you're going to have to start over. Yeah, you have to rescan your identity information in. We can't help you. Um, if you've you know transitioned everything into iCloud or, or what have you, then uh, you know that's that's easy to to restore it to restore it, um, and that's you know up to each individual's um, 
you know, risk calculus and how comfortable they are doing backups or how they do their backups. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. So walk us through some of the other features. So like you mentioned IDs and, and flying, but what other use cases can I use uh, the app for? Sure. So one of the things that we're, we're really interested in uh, and we're getting quite a, a strong reaction to right now is around telemedicine and, and health. Yeah. Um, I think the whole COVID situation has made it pretty clear that uh, telemedicine is, is here to stay. Um, the challenge, of course, is how do you know that your, <laughs> that your doctor or your healthcare provider is legitimate uh, and not somebody pretending to be a doctor? And the flip side is also important. You know, how does a healthcare provider or an insurance company know that uh, you're a real person and that you, know, sure. you are who you say you are? So being able to enable a uh, reliable digital identity service that uses government source data that doesn't have a huge honeypot of a central database of personal information and meets all the privacy requirements uh, from new regulation we think is a, is a key piece of that puzzle and uh, the active consent the ability for someone to say oh my doctor is asking me for permission to view my records uh, and prove who i am i consent for that purpose for this individual to see that for a certain amount of time right uh, that's pretty powerful that's and that's amazing really right? yeah i i think people have kind of longed for that stuff for for years at least um, like I, people like myself have really wished I could have everything on my phone, right? Like it just, cause I, I don't remember certain things. It's just like, here, I'll just give you access to my data or, or my phone quickly. So you can have a quick look at whatever you need off that. Right. Especially if it's your doctor or somebody you trust. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the thing that's so interesting to, to, to us is, you know, the first 20 years of the internet were all about accumulating data, aggregating yeah. data. Everybody wanted all the data they could possibly get, and for good reason. They made a lot of money with that. But if the model up until now was I would give, uh, you know, a business my name and address and phone number or email, what they were doing on their back end was, was verifying that with any number of contractors that had vast piles of data right um and that sort of self-replicates over time and that's where all the privacy headaches come in when gdpr came out and the illinois biometric law came out and ccpa came out and huge fines started to be assessed you know 200 million dollar fines and whatnot a lot of companies have started to say well wait, wait a second we don't want to touch any of that um, yeah. we're in the business of providing healthcare. We're in the business of taking you to Paris. We're not in the business of uh, selling data. And therefore, we don't want that liability. That's a huge shift. Totally. Right? They still want the marketing information, and that's all fine, because you can do that without getting into PII. But the ability to uh, prove that someone's identity without having to maintain a massive database of all their personal details it's a major shift in how the market's thinking about identity why do you think that is and why do you think people have been like 
that whole mind shift is is shifted because it's it's only been within probably the last few years and i think obviously what's happening right now with covid 19 is really kind of push that forward yeah well i think there's a couple things i think you know on the consumer front people have talked a big game about privacy for a long time yeah but when you get right down to it you know most consumers will give up their information for any incremental convenience they can get yeah um the change has come in where it's become expensive and risky for big companies, uh, you know, big main, main street companies to ingest and, and store all that PII. Yeah, I guess. Um, you risk getting fined. You risk having security breaches. You risk being all over the news. Um, all of that is, I think, something that companies have come to the conclusion that this stuff is actually a liability. And as they, you've seen companies hire chief privacy officers, yep. you know, 15 years ago, only a handful of companies had chief privacy officer. And they were kind of unusual animals. Now chief privacy officers have a, a huge amount of sway in, in how a company acts online. Um, so I think the regulatory environment changed threat and the risk of carrying data from the security point of view changed. And we think privacy is actually going to be driven by enterprise as opposed to by individual consumers. Why do you say that? I agree with you, but I'm, I'm curious. Because again, I think it goes back to the companies have, uh, it's a dollars and cents issue. If, if okay. they're breached or they violate GDPR, they're facing you know, pretty big fines. Uh, so there's a real business case for them not to get involved. Now it might be obviously it's going to be different for someone like Facebook, where they make you know their whole business model is based on data. But if I'm American Airlines or I'm uh, United Healthcare, I'm probably going to look at that a little differently. And uh, at the same time, you know, we we consumers we all say, oh, well, privacy, privacy, privacy. But then you go on Facebook and yeah. <laughs> or Instagram or you know, and, and people are putting everything on there, right? Uh, more than you know, more, more, use sometimes more than anyone will know. But um, so I think that's what's going on there. No, that that's fair. It, it's interesting. I, I kind of think it, it's almost like privacy to me is almost kind of dead, right? It's like you need to figure out how comfortable and what amount of data you're willing to give away. And you're going to end up giving away more than that just without even really realizing it. Unless you go through a huge amount of time and effort to like stay off certain sites or like, or if you do, you create like fake pro, like there's this whole other side of it. Right. And so having access and knowing what is kind of out there that I can control, I think in a lot of cases is going to be really important to a lot of people. And sure, businesses are going to be the ones that build that and decide that for people, not, people do you know what i'm trying to get at there no i I absolutely get that i I also think there's a certain amount of innocence that we're still burning through around privacy i don't think privacy is dead privacy might be comatose but (laughs) uh, uh, you know in the mind of the consumer but when you start looking at what clearview and other um facial recognition companies have been doing where they're scraping images uh, off of social media off the web there are now companies out there that are buying uh, archived security footage from years and years ago. 
right? right. And now you can run facial recognition backwards. You can yep. see where I was 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> that's pretty creepy. Totally. No, 100%. So I think, Keep going you know, you look at the protests that just happened, right? Yep. Um, how many folks who showed up at a protest are now in the database? Yep. Based on, on video. Um, I don't, I, I think over time we're going to, we're going to find that privacy is a really, really important part of having a functional democracy. Um, we're just not, you know, it, it hasn't seized the public consciousness yet. Interesting. No, I agree with you. I, I'm curious then, how do you guys deal with the different privacy rules in ge- in different geographic locations? Because, yeah, well, just, and then I'll answer, I'll ask you my follow-up question after that. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, we try to look at what is the, what is the, what's the gold standard for privacy and let's turn that into a feature. Let's make okay. that an advantage for our company. Um, you know, it's really interesting when we look at, at China, uh, that's a market. I think we would be very wary of going anywhere near. Right. Um, yeah. Because it has absolutely the opposite model of what we're all about. Right. So we, we strongly support GDPR. We strongly support CCPA. We think, Illinois' biometric law is 100% right. Um, we want it, the individual to be able to control how their identity information is distributed. Um, we think that's just super important. No, yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. It's interesting, but like, how does it kind of work though if, like, I. Like if I'm a, live in a certain state or or whatnot, and I travel to um, one of the countries where their privacy and and some of their laws are, are are a lot different, and I need like a medical procedure or something, is it possible? Like I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like how do you judge the jurisdictions of? Because I will create data at different places in my lifetime in different privacy regions that may or may not play nice together. So how do you guys manage that or or bridge that gap? Or is it not really relevant at all because I'm putting in my own personal information? I think it's more the latter. But I think we would say this. You know, we we, uh, expect our relying parties to be transparent about what happens to the information after they get it. So if you're, let's say, flying into Illinois, okay. uh, the Illinois law has, has various provisions, one of which is you have to have, to have active consent for someone to run biometrics on you. Okay. Uh, but then your next flight is from O'Hare to Beijing, right? Right. Well, you still may choose to share your, you still may choose to share your, Photograph with uh, you know, the Beijing Airport Authority, but you should probably be aware that by doing that, um, you know, the Beijing Airport Authority may choose to do different things with your data. So, what we can do is we can make you aware of where you're sending it. Okay. Uh, and that's a step up. But um, what it does is it allows an airline or or a healthcare system to. Um, not have to persist that data. They don't have to be responsible for it. 
if they have to pass it on to a government because of regulations, they have to do that, but it's, it doesn't need to be persisted by that business. Yeah, interesting. And then I guess, though, like once I like, I guess the thing that's interesting to me is like once you release your data, you're basically hoping that what the other person is telling you is the truth, right? Like anything you uh, post online you is basically like it's kind of there forever or potentially there forever. Potentially there forever. But if you if you're submitting it to United Airlines, United Airlines has got a uh, uh, a, a pretty good reason to not break the law. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, fair. Right. So yeah. Okay. As long as those the laws are being enforced, then I think the consumers should have some confidence, uh, at least with reputable companies, that their data is not being misused in secret. Sure, and I guess you are more likely. Well, you're going to cherry pick who you share information or at least which information you share with certain uh, companies and not, right? Like some airlines, you might give more information than other airlines, for example. I, I don't know like specific yeah. examples, but yeah, but we do that all the time with, with brands now in the physical world, right? That's, that's right. That's exactly right. The difference is, you know, in this environment, there's a real motivation for companies not to have to build giant databases of people's photographs totally yeah and we we can help them avoid doing that essentially sure. what, what our value prop is sure so what happens though if i lose my phone and somebody gets into it because i don't have a password or something on it like how do you guys manage security on the phone and privacy on the phone i mean in that event um you can um you know, there are kill switches, right? You can sort okay. of wipe out your, your phone account remotely if you haven't set up anything like that. Uh, you know, it's look, you can lose your wallet too, yeah, totally. right? Yeah. Um, okay. There's a certain amount of personal responsibility that has to go along with all this. I think what we're saying is we put a password on the app, um, we put encryption inside the app. Uh, the data is, you know, encrypted both in transit and at rest. Um, can you still be careless? Yeah, you can take a screenshot of, of it and, and put it on Facebook and we can't stop you from doing that. Um, so there's some personal responsibility that goes in, of course, but again, what we're doing is making it possible for people to have more control. Sure. So how does it work generally? Like I upload my driver's license, for example, um, do do most places do you need some sort of relationship with all the different vendors or is it kind of a case by case basis or is it really up to the the place I'm trying to get into that needs my ID to make sure I'm of age for example how does that kind of work yeah so yeah so we we have an API that we provide to any business that would like to operate in this network Okay. Um, so what that means is um, API allows a business to send an invitation to a consumer okay. and then receive the data. And the data is encrypted. And it has a, what amounts to a, a cryptographic time fuse on it. So after the specified amount of time, it's no longer readable by that 
relying party. Okay. But if I just like pull up my driver's license inside the app and like show it to somebody at like, if I'm trying to buy like liquor, for example, like, does that, sure. like it's up to them to decide if that's valid or not. Is that fair to say at least at this point? Um, I, yeah, I think, I think right now we would say we would not recommend that. Right. And I don't think state law would support it. Um, there has to be a network. We believe very strongly there needs to be a network verification of a digital token. No, I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I guess. Cause like if I show a physical ID card or like my driver's license or something like, sure, you could fake it, but you could, like you have to do a pretty good job. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of legal sides of that. Right. Like, but if I just show somebody like a photo of something from a phone, like it, it's kind of like your apps are relevant from that. Like I could take a photo of a friend's ID and hand up my phone and if they buy that then it's kind of on them right uh yeah i think that's that's yeah that's that's right i think we you know our, our position is uh we're really trying to help create a, a digital id experience that uses government source data you know without a central database and with phenomenal privacy Sure. And and so but you're basically building something that's way more secure than the physical things that we use every day, like our driver's license or our passport and all that stuff. Right. Like it's like you're but I think sometimes people forget that the digital experience is is a lot more secure, like ninety nine point nine percent of the time than the like paper copies or plastic physical copies we have of some of these things. And I think that mindset is shifting, but I don't think a hundred percent of people are there yet. And I think like with what you guys are building, obviously that mindset's going to change as they're like friends and family really start using this stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, what we learned a lot from mobile passport, right? What we learned is um, for the, for a very, very large number of people, it's just not an issue of, of trusting it or not. Um, I think people are going to carry a physical ID with them for a very long time because uh, there's there's some comfort in knowing you've got something in your pocket that's that's you know physical, um, at least for my generation, right? But uh, in, when you when we talk to our friends in government, when we talk to our friends in highly regulated industries such as finance or travel, um, there's a very keen awareness of the fraud and counterfeit problem that's out there. Um, and there's an increasing belief that physical tokens in and of themselves, it's just a game of uh, one-upsmanship. It's, it's whack-a-mole. And uh, that's not a sustainable model. Right? So there's something new is going to come along. We, It's going to be digital in nature. And uh, I believe very strongly it'll be networked. Yeah, no, that that makes 100% sense, right? And then eventually, um, like, as more and more countries and other things are, are starting to share data or you're allowed to share your data with these other countries or places you're going, like, it's only going to get better, right? And more secure for kind of everybody involved. Yeah. Interesting. So... How do you guys decide what new features to roll out? Because 
you've built some really big apps that are being used by a lot of people. And um, it's tricky sometimes to roll out big changes or big updates. Um, Obviously, you need to test like crazy when you have that many users going out. But how do you decide how to move these platforms forward when you have such big user bases? And is there any advice or, or tips that you have for people that are doing that are working on these large scale apps that lots of people are using. Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) I think my team is going to kill me for this question. Um, I I don't think we have that process totally figured out yet to be, to be very honest. I don't think Um, most people have, you know, as our, as our, when our company was small, we would, we're still very small, but when we were, you know, four or five people, we would literally, sit around in a room and debate it and i even in a couple occasions we we voted um as we've gotten a little bit bigger we're still pretty tiny Um, it's become a little bit more of a process but we're still it's a combination of what are we hearing from the marketplace what do we think is a good idea and and what can we realistically execute within a certain amount of time uh, and so it's a messy process for us and something I, I think we're going to be working to improve. Sure. No, that I, I, I love the honesty, right? Because I, I think it's it's really tricky and there's not like a guidebook to it, right? It's, and it really depends on what you're trying to build. Obviously, when you guys are building something that's privacy focused, really, like that has to be the number one priority. Sure, a million features could maybe get built, but if they break the whole privacy side of the app, then there's no point in doing that, right? Where I think people forget about oh, that, that sometimes. Oh, that's totally fair. Yeah, that's totally, I, that, we take that for granted. I, I probably should have said it up front. I mean, there's certain things we simply don't do. We don't even, honestly, they basically don't come up with conversation um, because that's where we're starting from. What's harder for us is, um, let's say we see an opportunity with a government agency to do something cool. And the question is going to be, well, how long is it going to take to get everybody on board who needs to be brought on board? Or we have an opportunity with company A and an opportunity with company B, and we can't do both. So what, you know, which feature do we think is more important, more widely usable? Can we stack them sequentially? Those are the calls that are hard. Um, it's, it's not we very rarely run into a situation where, you know, should we do something? Is it the right thing to do? The company has been pretty, pretty clear on, on privacy and security from the get go, because we all know that if we screw that up, we're dead. So um, we don't, we don't push the envelope there. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So I want to dive a little bit into the business side. So, how does a business actually go about partnering with you guys and leveraging your technology? Yeah, so great question. Um, we have a API suite that we make available and we welcome uh, you know, companies will, will reach out to us or we'll reach out to them. Uh, we'll get them on board with the, with the you know, demonstration and then documentation for the API kit. Um, we'll provide you know, any guidance or assistance needed to get that API up and running. And, uh, you know, typically we'll spend a lot of time up front talking about the use case and the, 
help think through the process flow so that uh, a company can use our technology in the most effective way. But um, it's, it's you know, really about getting documentation into the hands of the right people and, and coaching people on, on how to deploy it. Yeah, I suppose. Hey, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So traditionally, and it's probably like a little bit all over the map, how long does it roughly take for a company to actually get up and running and start um, using your technology and then letting their customers verify with uh, AirSight? Yeah, I mean, it can take as little as three or four weeks oh, or, or it can take as long as three or four months, depending on on uh, what kind of legacy systems are involved and, and you know, how, what our, our customers' planning processes look like, right? Uh, if it's a straight ahead and they've already thought through what they want to do and they've got it all under control, thought out, it's a very quick integration. Sure. So how did you guys fund the development of this did you bootstrap did you raise some money or, or walk us through that side of the business i'm sure so in the beginning i mean it was pretty we, we did a lot of bootstrapping okay. um in 2017 we um did an a round uh with Grotech, uh, bain capital ventures and blazar uh, were the, the leads in that we also had um, participation from Tufts and Reuters, which was tremendous. Nice. Um, and, and with that, we were able to take, we had already built Mobile Passport at that point. Right. But it was really, really thinly staffed. Um, I believe at the time there were four of us. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we already had two and a half million members and, uh, you know, a dozen locations and we were drowning. Um so, you know, the last two and a half years, we've, we've actually had some funding. Um, we've been able to build out the broader identity solution that we just talked about. Nice. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really excited because we have financial stability now to, to look ahead, you know, five, seven years into the future. But, uh, we're, nice. we're pretty excited. So how do you guys monetize the platform then? Sure. So, you know, we, we, there are a couple of different things. You know, our fundamental belief is that the value we're providing to business is considerable because we're lowering their liability. We're making things much more efficient for them, for them giving them the advantages of implementing uh, digital identity solutions without the disadvantages of having to worry about all the data. Sure. So we, we look for, we've got a couple of different fee models that um, businesses can and uh, choose from depending on what works for their business model, whether it's per transaction or uh, monthly flat fees, things of that nature. Um, we believe there will be certain uh, special situations where we think we have something extra to offer directly to consumers. And we have done some of that with Mobile Passport Plus. Sure. Um, we may do some more is we can find a way to make our solution more valuable to consumers. We'll certainly do that. No, I, Interesting. I, that's that's really cool. So we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other uh, links or uh, sites that you want to mention and then make sure you, you give us where people can get more information about AirSide? 
Sure. I, you know, we would really encourage everyone to to read about what we're all about and, and see some of our demos over at um, airsidemobile.com. And please download the uh, Mobile Passport app because one of these days we'll be back on the uh, – we'll all be able to travel again and go on vacation to fun places. And who wants to wait in line? So that's uh, mobilepassport.us. Perfect. Well, Hans, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day, man. Uh, thank you very much for having me, and have a great day. Take Thanks. Care. You too. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.